Okay, cool. <laughs> Whoa. Check it out. I um, have those dreams. I'm a, I'm a guitarist. I've played since I was in my teens. I have these dreams of this monster wall of feedback. And um, maybe this is my chance. I can see the Marshall stacks behind me. Um, okay, <laughs> good morning, everyone. Happy Mother's Day. Um, it's a real pleasure to, uh, to be here. Um, we're going to be back in our series in Acts today, and we're going to get pretty much straight into it. So let's pray first and then read. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. Thank you that it's in your heart to speak and communicate the truth about yourself to us. And we pray that you would give us attentive hearts. Help us to listen to your voice. And Lord, as we hear your word opened up, we pray that you would minister to us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're in the last half of Acts 8 here. Um, So just flip with that to me and then stand. We're going to read from verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. And then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And this is the passage of scripture that the unit was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. And who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and he told him the good news about Jesus. As they travelled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptised? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. And then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch didn't see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Okay, so that's our Bible passage for this morning. Take a seat. So I want to start this morning with a simple question that will hopefully help us find our bearings in this part of the Bible. It's a good question to ask any part of the Bible that you're reading, simply why, why is this passage here? Not just why is it in the Bible at all, but why is it tucked just in here, just between the first part of Acts chapter 8 and the beginning of Acts chapter 9? Now the simple answer to that question is that this is just the order in which events took place. And that's actually a pretty good answer. The flow of the text makes it clear that this event with Philip and the Ethiopian just kind of runs on chronologically from the previous story about Philip when he was in Samaria. And that story just runs on chronologically from the previous um, part where we had um, the narrative of the martyrdom of Stephen. But as Christians, we have the privilege, don't we, of knowing that there's more to life than this. Sometimes it's confusing, sometimes it's heartbreaking, but ultimately we have this most wonderful comfort of knowing that God is in control and that he's working even in the everyday nuts and bolts of life for our good. So we know there's always more to life than this is just the order in which events took place. We know that there's a bigger picture and in this particular story in the Bible we can see that bigger picture really clearly. Now, before we get too far into this, though, I want to pause here and just issue a bit of a health warning about what I just said. Because I think, even though it's true that whatever happens to us as believers and God is working in it for our good, I want just to urge us to be careful about claiming that we know exactly why certain things are happening, why specific events are playing out the way that they are. 
Because you see, these two things are not the same. Job, you'll remember, had an amazing conviction that God was working in his life. But he didn't have the first clue about why what happened to him happened. And that's much more representative of the normal Christian life than what we're about to see here in Acts. So what I'm going to do is draw you a diagram to help you understand this. So let's see what we can do with this. Okay. You ready, Rick? Right. So, first bubble here, we're just going to go in and call this God's intentions. Forgive the handwriting. Okay, see that? Perfect. Right, now after that, we're going to put a bubble in the middle, nice generous one, kind of cloudy thing. And in there, we're going to say the, oh, that wasn't too good, the... (laughs) confusing things God sometimes does. So that's true, isn't it? Sometimes the thing that God, things that God does in our lives are confusing. And then over here at the last part of the diagram, I'm just going to draw us, represented by this nice stick person. Okay, so there's our diagram. So just keep that in front of you. So, you can see what I'm doing here. I'm saying we've got God's intentions, then there's a cloud showing the confusing things that God sometimes does, and then there's us. And there are places in the Bible where God shows us clearly how those three things link up. So let's give you an example. The cross is like this. On the cross, God does something that's mysterious, something that's really confusing. He allows his own son to die. And that leaves us asking, well, hey, what are his intentions? What stands behind that? And you know that if if the Bible didn't tell us specifically what God's intentions were, I think we would find that really hard to answer. The disciples found that hard to answer, didn't they, when they were actually there? But the thing is, the cross is one of those instances where the Bible really does tell us. It teaches us that love motivated God to send his son to die in our place so that we can live with him forever in heaven. So do you see that on our diagram, this is one of those instances where it's as if God has gone in and drawn some really nice explicit arrows for us and said, okay, I'm showing you exactly how my intentions go through these confusing things that I'm doing through to you, and I can show you exactly how they apply. Now, that's exactly what we're going to see here in Acts today. So at the end of chapter 7, do you remember we read about the martyrdom of Stephen and then the church being persecuted and kicked out of Jerusalem? And I think if we'd been there at the time, we would have found that a really confusing set of events. Because God had promised, hadn't he, that he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not overcome it. So if you were one of the members of the church at the time, you must have been thinking, well, what's going on? You know, what's God's plan? Has he, you know, uh, has he uh, taken his eye off the ball? But in this case, in Acts, just like the cross, we get these arrows coming across from God's side of the diagram. We can see what it is that his intentions really are. And we see that, as Ryan pointed out, in Acts 1.8. So I'll just read that to you. Jesus said to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So do you see that God's intentions, in this case, are coming out, they're emerging from the order of the events. Straight after Stephen's death and the beginning of the persecution in Jerusalem, we see Philip taking the gospel to Samaria, because Jesus intended that the gospel should be preached first in Jerusalem and then Samaria. And now in our passage, we find Philip taking the gospel to this Ethiopian, because this is the beginning of this gospel outreach to the ends of the earth. Again, exactly what Jesus said in Acts 1.8. And I think this sequence of events and then beginning to realize what it signified must have been really encouraging for the members of the early church. Because I think think, uh, prior to Stephen's death, if you think what what their expectations would have been about how Acts 1-8 would be fulfilled, they must have been sitting there in Jerusalem thinking, hey, we're rocking here. You know, the church is growing, the spirit's moving. You know, no one seems to be able to stand in front of us. What's going to happen here is that we're going to go on to uh, get into a real position of strength, and then we're going to blast out of here into Samaria and Judea and into the ends of the earth, and it's going to be brilliant. 
Now, what happened was that it all went wrong. And they ended up being kicked out of Jerusalem in weakness, not strength. But then, with this prophecy behind them, Acts 1.8, and then seeing the order of events, you can imagine them realizing, hey, maybe this is what God actually had in mind all along. And maybe even though the Jewish leaders intend this for harm, God intends this persecution for good, for the saving of many lives. They had the privilege of knowing exactly how God's intentions related to the confusing things that were happening to them. But the point that I wanted to make here, and just to kind of call this out at the beginning of the sermon, is that this is unusual. This is not business as usual. This is the exception, not the rule. And if we're not prepared to accept this, we can find ourselves running into trouble. You see, when difficult or mysterious things happen, and there is no explicit guidance in the Bible, there's no explanation like there is of the cross, or there's no prophecy like there is in Acts 1.8, then our inclination is to try to reverse the order of the diagram. So let's show you what that looks like. Come on. Okay. So what we're tempted to do is go in here and take these arrows out, because these are things that only God can provide. And then we're tempted to come back in and try and construct it from our side. So we start working backwards and say, okay, can I work out, looking from where I stand, looking at the confusing things that are happening to me, what God's intentions might be? And the problem with that is that it's really easy to come to some false conclusions. So a good case study of that is the book of Job. Do you remember Job? when he had his three friends come and counsel him, they tried exactly this. They looked at the bad things that were happening to Job. There was no explicit guidance about exactly what God's intentions were. They thought that they could reverse engineer this thing. And they came to the conclusion that God was punishing Job for unconfessed sin. They were completely wrong. But that's what they thought was happening. So you can see it here. Sorry. When we try and run this thing backwards... It's easy to start off with that arrow and then find yourself spiraling out in some direction that's completely unlike what God's real intentions are. And I want to call attention to this because that's not the only way to get this wrong. So, so when we're suffering, it's easy for us to say, well, I'm looking at the difficult experience I'm, I'm experiencing here, wondering what God's intentions might be. Maybe it's because I don't have enough faith. Maybe if I had more faith, then my prayers for relief would be answered. Or we might say, okay, well, clearly, God has some kind of list of people that he favors, and I haven't managed to find my way onto that list. So maybe I'm not really converted, and maybe that's why God isn't hearing me. Or you might come over here and say, I'm sure God is very sympathetic to my situation, but maybe he's not able to help me, and maybe that's the reason why bad things are happening. Or you might come out here and say, okay, maybe God just isn't really that bothered. Maybe he's just indifferent to my situation. You know, maybe he's got other things on his mind. Maybe I'm not number one priority. And then finally, it's easy to come out of here and say, well, maybe God doesn't even exist. So can you see, as soon as you start to reverse the order of this diagram, you get into really unreliable territory, trying to figure out exactly why God is doing the things that he does in our lives. It's a bit like shooting bullets in the dark. We're just as likely to come up with bad information as good. Now, all of us are going to face times in life where this sort of thing has happened. This is kind of coming from personal experience for me after being ill for all of those years. I remember looking back through those confusing experiences and thinking, where is God in all of this? And what are his intentions? And not getting any answers, not finding anything in the Bible that really clearly explained it. And we're tempted to go off and draw these kinds of conclusions. But I wanted to call it out just to show that the premise on which all of that stands is unreliable. Do you see that what we're trying to do when we do this is work on the assumption that all of life is like the cross or that all of life is like Acts 8 where we can clearly see what God's intentions are. There are occasions, it's true, when we may get a strong feeling from God, a strong indication of exactly why he's doing something. And that's great. Let's test that against scripture and if it's reliable, let's thank him for it. But again, I think the point to make is that it's still not normal. The, the normal experience is one where maybe we find it harder to get to grips with what God's intentions are. The, the model that's provided by the cross or by Acts 
is something which isn't intended to prescribe what the normal Christian life looks like. You know that those things are enormous landmarks in the whole history of the Bible. Our lives are not like that. So God works in an unusual way because he's doing unusual things with the cross or in Acts. That's why we have angels appearing, telling Philip where to go, and then him disappearing at the end of the story. So it's not business as usual. Business as usual is more the experience of Job, trusting that God is still good, even when we don't know exactly what he's doing. Okay, does that make sense, just as a kind of initial health warning? All right, so we can clear that one for now, Rick. All right. So, now let's get into our passage and get to that question that I asked. Why is it here? Well, it's here because through a very unexpected mechanism, that's the apparent victory of the enemies of the church. God was working out his plan to spread the gospel from Jerusalem to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. Now, we can understand that a little bit better if we look on a map. So now I'm going to pull that up. Okay. Right, so this is the map of our little area here. In verse 26, Philip's told by an angel to go to Gaza, which is just down there at the bottom. It's hard to see it with the lights on, but you can see just down on the coast there. And we know, of course, that Philip actually never arrives in Gaza. But the important thing about this is Philip doesn't know that. So we've got to ask ourselves, hey, what was in Philip's mind when this angel shows up and tells him to go to Gaza? Well, when we hear that name... We, our minds kind of automatically go to the modern-day situation, don't they? And we're thinking Gaza Strip, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you know, uh, disputed territory, all that kind of thing. But in Bible times, if you heard the name Gaza, what you would have been thinking was Philistines, the arch enemies of Israel. Because in the book of Judges, did you know Gaza is the place where Samson pulls down the temple on his own head and on the heads of his enemies? Gaza is also one of the cities which was affected by disease when the ark passed through. Then you've got Gaza becoming this major trading post in the Macedonian Empire when Alexander came down this coastline. So all in all, when Philip heard, off you go to Gaza, sunshine, what he would have heard is, I want you to go right into the heart of your historic enemy's territory. This was a place that Israel had been defining themselves against for years. So it would be really hard to imagine anywhere more foreign. But then... When Philip is on his way to Gaza, which is a place that he would have considered the ends of the earth, he meets someone who really comes from the ends of the earth. So let's just bring some perspective to that. Okay, so... Oh, whoops. This is where the Ethiopian comes from. Can you see that? That's Aswan, the ancient capital of, uh, of uh, Ethiopia. He is trying to get to here. So the Ethiopian's journey looks like this, up the Nile Valley and across to Jerusalem. That's 1,250 miles. So can you see that's a long, long way? <laughs> 2,000 years ago, hardly anybody would ever make a journey of 1,250 miles. They wouldn't have been doing that kind of thing for any reason. And the result was that places like this in the ancient world were culturally, culturally remote from each other. Jews and Ethiopians just didn't have anything really to do with each other. They didn't share a language. They didn't share any customs. So this place, Ethiopia, was literally like another planet if you were living in, in Israel. Then think about the ethnic difference between these two men when they met. So Philip was a Jew, and the eunuch that he met was a black African Now, the eunuch was probably pretty well equipped to actually navigate this because he was an official in the Ethiopian government. So he was probably quite used to traveling, meeting people from different cultures. But from Philip's perspective, I imagine that he was totally freaked out even by being in Samaria. So you can imagine what it would have been like to suddenly be in this new situation. And then socially, can you see that there's an enormous contrast between these two men as well? So on the face of it, the Ethiopian is several steps higher up the ladder than Philip is. Our Bibles tell us that he's traveling in a chariot, don't they? And when I first read that, or and reading this as a kid, I think I, I imagined something out of Ben-Hur, like one of those little one-man chariots kind of riding on it. But actually, that's really not what he's got in mind here. You can see later in the passage, the Ethiopian has to order his soldiers to stop it. So immediately it's telling you this is a bigger deal. 
What Luke's probably got in mind is a big carriage, something like the first century equivalent of a private jet. So he's got soldiers, servants, provisions, tents, goodness knows what with him here. So you can imagine for Philip it would have been pretty intimidating to, intimidating to go up to this guy. But there's another layer to this, isn't there? Because the Ethiopian is also a eunuch. And that wasn't unusual in his culture at the time, especially if, um, for a government official. But from the Jewish perspective, this was a real problem. Because to be a eunuch in Jewish culture means to be in a state of perpetual ritual uncleanness. Eunuchs were excluded from public worship, not allowed to enter the temple. They were brutally stigmatized. So you can imagine just the, all the tensions going on behind this conversation. So when this one man, this Ethiopian, I think God is making a really powerful point to us about the call he's placed on our lives to share our faith. Because it's easy to have a vision of evangelism, isn't it? That's just about waiting for someone to enter our lives who's so much like we are that it just feels the most natural thing in the world to talk to them about Jesus. I know that that's kind of where my heart goes, just hoping one day all of those obstacles that I feel will disappear and then it will be easy to share my faith. Well, let's just wake up if we think that way. This story just destroys this whole idea that we're only called to, called to speak to people that we find it easy to relate to. I'm sure that when Philip had been in Jerusalem meeting with lots of people like himself, he'd done a good job of sharing the gospel. But when the time came, he was ready to step right out of his comfort zone in obedience to God's call. So there's a simple challenge here for us as we get started. Are we ready to do that too? But let's keep looking at this question. Why is this passage here? We've already figured out that it's here to show us that the gospel is moving from Jerusalem to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth and that we need to be ready to do the same. But is there anything more to it? I think there's something really important in the contrast between Philip's experience in Samaria that we read about and heard about with Ryan last time and the experience that we've got now with this Ethiopian. Do you remember that when Philip was in Samaria, the focus of the story was on one man? He met a guy called Simon the Sorcerer. And the focus of our story is on one man as well. And the two men that Philip meets couldn't be more different. First of all, the Ethiopian and Simon show us the contrast on the one hand between someone who is really seeking God and then on the other hand, someone who ultimately, when it comes right down to it, just wants other people to seek them. So it's telling to me that when the gospel first bursts out of Jerusalem and it meets the world in Samaria, that Simon is the first person that we see. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't he just provide a perfect model of what our world is all about? He talks a really good game. He convinces everyone, perhaps even himself, that he really trusts God and that he's left his old life behind. But in the end, we see that his ultimate motivation is really just the desire for power. He wants power over other people. He wants to be elevated. He wants people to come and look to him. And Luke wants us to see that this is just like oil and water with the gospel. These two things just do not fit together. And can you see that the Ethiopian's here to show us a different way? The Ethiopian is actually showing us what God always intended to happen when he made himself known to the people of Israel. He wanted Israel to be a light to the nations around them so that people would seek him and perhaps find him. So do you see that the differences between Simon and the Ethiopian kind of hinting here the way that we ourselves need to come to God? So if you're here wondering what it is that real Christians have got and you want some of it yourself, well, this contrast shows you the way. We have to give up seeking God for what we can get out of him. That's the Simon model. Instead, we have to come seeking God for his own sake. And that's what the Ethiopian is going to show us as we work through this passage. Next, there's a contrast between the patience of the Ethiopian and the impatience of Simon. Simon, of course, is very 21st century. He wants results right now. So when Peter and John arrive in Samaria, Simon sees God's spirit working through them, and he wants to have all of that instantly. So it's all, I want that experience. I want those gifts. I want them on my timetable. But the thing that I really love about the Ethiopian is that he, in contrast, is just completely tenacious. Do you see that? You can piece together something of his state of mind just by looking at what he says and where he is on this journey. Clearly, he set off on this massive pilgrimage from Ethiopia up to Jerusalem with high hopes that he would find his spiritual questions answered there. 
But when Philip meets him, he's on his way back. And when Philip asks him about the section of the Bible that he's reading, he just has a pathetic response, doesn't he? How can I understand it unless someone explains it to me? Why is that? You know, this Ethiopian is an intelligent man. Now, I think what happened is that when he was in Jerusalem, where he had hoped to find a way in, he'd been shut out. He met a bunch of Pharisees who had told him that he couldn't even come into the temple because he was ritually unclean. He'd been told that there was no point in him reading the Bible on his own because the only way that he could hope to understand it was with their officially stamped explanation. What a tragedy. Can you see how totally disappointed he must have been after making that journey? I think this is the point where a lot of us will be giving up. And some of you may be in this place thinking, I've been struggling, searching for God for the whatever my equivalent of 1,250 miles is. And I've been told, no, can't come in, not allowed. But the thing I love about this guy is that he's still at it. He's still reading. He won't let it go. Even though he had made absolutely no progress for all his efforts traveling all that way, he wouldn't let go of the fact that there was something life-changing in the Bible, a hunch that he just couldn't let go of. And ultimately, it's his patience and not Simon's impatience that's rewarded. And then finally, do you see that there's an important contrast between the kind of public image of these two men? Did you notice in the early part of chapter 8 that Simon was actually baptized? Everything looked so good with Simon that even Philip thought that his faith was genuine. He had the perfect conversion story from sorcerer to believer. And then contrast that with the eunuch. There are no fireworks there. He just went to Jerusalem. The Pharisees shut him out and he disappears. But do you see how upside down that is when we come to the end of both their stories? Even though Simon had all of those external credentials, he was baptized by someone whose name is in the Bible, but it really didn't make any difference. And though the Ethiopian was absolutely beyond the pale in the eyes of the religious establishment, God welcomed him like a long-lost son. So do you see that these two men present us with a warning and an encouragement? If you have a dramatic conversion story, or you were baptized in a nice official way and that's a big deal for you, Well, just remember Simon the Sorcerer had all of that too. But if you know that your life doesn't tick all the right religious boxes, well, then maybe you should be encouraged. Luke is still teaching us here what he taught us with Ananias and Sapphira. God doesn't really care what other people think of us. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Okay, so here's the lesson from the position of this passage in Acts. God is reaching out to the wider world from Jerusalem to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as he does so, he's presenting the world with a model to follow. If we don't yet know him and we insist on being Simon, we will be lost. But if we're willing to step into the shoes of the Ethiopian, we'll be found. Okay, so now we're done with the location of this passage. I want to just devote the rest of our time here now to looking at this conversation that plays out between the Ethiopian and Philip. The Ethiopian is sitting in his carriage reading from the prophecy of Isaiah. Now that itself is revealing. Many of us will recognize the passage that he was reading. It's Isaiah 53, one of the most famous chapters in the whole Bible. But because our experience with that passage is so familiar, it's easy for us to read that experience back into his experience. So we imagine that he was picking up a Bible, not unlike ours, reading from Isaiah 53 verse 1 through to Isaiah 53 verse 12, stopping at the chapter break like we might do and then saying, hey, you know, what's going on here? Show me the Joyce Meyer study guide. But of course, in those days, there wasn't any Joyce Meyer and the Bible wasn't divided into chapters and verses. So we need to ask ourselves, what's the, what's the Ethiopian doing out of all the places in the Bible he could be? Why is he in this whole section of Isaiah? And this section of Isaiah that he's reading actually doesn't end at the end of chapter 53 as we have it in our Bibles. It runs on from that amazing prophecy about the death of Jesus through into three separate areas of application in chapters 54, 55, and 56 as we have them. So in chapter 54, Isaiah applies all that wonderful teaching about the death of Jesus to the barren woman. And he's um, harking back there to Sarah, Abraham's wife, and applying his teaching using that symbol to the whole nation of Israel. 
Then in chapter 55, Isaiah applies the hope that he draws out in chapter 53 to the thirsty, showing that the Messiah will come and open the doors of God's blessing to the nations. But then in chapter 56, Isaiah applies the hope that he spells out in chapter 53 to outcasts. And I'm going to read it to you because it's very interesting. Isaiah says, Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me, and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. So do you know, that this, do you know now what the hope is that the eunuch couldn't let go of on this whole journey? To you I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. That's what drove him all the way to Jerusalem. The hope of finding answers in the temple And that's the very place that they shut him out of. Isn't that terrible? But then from Philip's perspective, he's traveling down towards Gaza as we had it. And he finds himself coming up behind the Ethiopian's extravagant caravan on the road. And at this point, he gets a kind of nudge from God's spirit. Go up to that chariot. Stay near it. He hears the Ethiopian reading the passage from Isaiah. And then he steps up and he introduces himself with a really good question. He starts just where the Ethiopian is at, and says, do you understand what you're reading? The Ethiopian explains that he's reading Isaiah. And so Philip, beginning with that very passage of Scripture, told him the good news about Jesus. Now, I'm going to confess that I had a bit of a problem with Luke as I was studying this passage over the last couple of weeks at this point. But isn't this just the place where you would really like some extra information Luke doesn't seem shy to fill us in on all the details of sermons and conversations in other places. So we get the whole of Peter's sermons earlier on in Luke. So why doesn't he explain exactly how Philip used this passage from the Old Testament and went on to explain the good news about Jesus? Later on in Acts, we find that Luke and Philip actually got to know each other. They traveled together with Paul. So there would have been brilliant opportunities for Luke to stick the equivalent of the journalist Mike under Philip's nose and say, hey, tell me what happened. Exactly what did you say? And then my frustration just got worse when I realized that Luke is a bit of a a kind of serial uh, lever outer of important information. Do you remember his description of Jesus' conversation with his disciples on the road to Emmaus? Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them all that was said in the scriptures concerning himself, period. Thanks. Isn't that just the classic place where we want more? It's one of those places where I'm like, oh, I just wish that we could be there or at least have a decent secondhand account of what he said. But you know, I think I've come to a really important realization about this passage this week, and this is probably the key lesson for this whole sermon I don't think Luke left these details out because he was lazy or negligent. I think Luke left these details out because he expects us to be able to fill them in. I think that if he was here and he heard our question, please can you just tell me how Jesus began with Moses and all the prophets and explain what was said in the scriptures concerning himself, he'd just be dumbstruck. It's like, you're telling me you don't know that? And if he heard us ask for details on how Philip began with Isaiah and told the Ethiopian the good news about Jesus, I think he would say, look, come on, surely this is basic. Luke leaves his narrative the way he leaves it here and on the road to Emmaus because he wants us to be able to provide the information. He's expecting us to know this stuff. And if we're serious about what we are going for as a church, wanting to reach out to our neighborhoods, to our street corners, this is the call that we absolutely need to grasp and internalize and nail it for ourselves. So this brings us to this really practical question. How would you begin with this very passage of Scripture and tell someone the good news about Jesus? How would you do it? Well, that's what I want to do with the rest of our time here. I think we're all bought into the idea, aren't we, that this is a kind of locker room church and that what we do here is about preparing ourselves for usefulness and for service and enjoyment of God outside these walls. So let's roll up our sleeves now and work this through. Let me start with my own attempt to explain the good news about Jesus, starting with this passage. Now, I'm going to need, if you'll indulge me here, I'm going to need an Ethiopian for this. Okay, so um, let's see what we can do here. 
All right, so um, we need a carriage. Here he is. Okay. And um, it must have been hot, I think, so we'll just have a little sunshade. We'll put our Ethiopian in. Here he is. <laughs> Reading the scroll. He's got a mad haircut. Um, he has a team of horses. I'm not sure how good that's, this is going to go. Um, but anyway, when I tried this before, it came out like a camel. Okay. Yeah, check it out. All right. Okay, <laughs> now I need my Ethiopian because I'm going to talk to him now. I'm going to pretend to be Philip. Okay, so you rate how I get on. I'm going to try and rebuild this conversation. Okay, Mr. Ethiopian, the passage that you're really reading really does sound strange, doesn't it? Isaiah is talking about a man being led to the slaughter and being cut off from the earth. But he wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about the life and death of the divine king that the Jews are expecting to come one day. Now, you might say, well, that sounds even more strange. Why would a divine king be killed and humiliated? But that's the whole reason why this passage that you're reading is so amazing. You see, the Bible teaches us that there is one God who made the world and everything in it, including you and including me. He placed us in it with a plan that we will live forever that we would live loving and serving him. And it's just the most amazing privilege he had in mind for us because God is good through and through. So what could be better than loving and serving and knowing him? But the Bible tells us that something terrible went wrong. It tells us that we as people are selfish and that we weren't content to be the best and the most blessed parts of God's creation. We decided that we wanted to be God ourselves, to decide for ourselves what was right and wrong. We spoil the world, and still we think we know what's best. And I don't know about you, but for me, I think that that's true inside myself. And you know, because this God is good, he can't live with this. Our destructiveness is the complete opposite of him. So if we choose to go our own way, the Bible tells us that he will let us have the consequences and that we will be shut out of his presence as his enemies. But this is where your amazing passage comes in. Because even though God could just leave us where we've chosen to go... Do you know he hasn't chosen to do that? He planned a rescue mission, and the divine king in your passage is the key to it. He sent him into this world to live as a man just like you and just like me. And God planned that he would die. He gave up his son as a trade for us. He said, I will let him take the consequences of your bad life. He can be shut out of my presence in your place. And I will give you the consequences of his life so that you can enjoy the life I originally planned for you because of him. So that's why he went like a lamb to the slaughter. He did, he did it as a sacrifice for you. And the most wonderful thing of all of this, Mr. Ethiopian, is that he paid our debts and then came back to life. All this happened just a few months ago, and I can introduce you to some people who met him. He overcame death itself, and now he's gone back to heaven. And I know it sounds kind of crazy, we, we believe that he will take us there to be with him one day because he promised he would. All the consequences of our bad lives, even death itself, are beaten if we trust him. We don't have to be excluded. We're welcome to come back into relationship with God. So do you see now, I hope you see what this passage that you're reading really means, but also I hope you see it leaves you with a choice that you have to make. You can keep on living the way that you're living, but if you do, and if you put yourself or anything else on the throne of your life in God's place, you will face the consequences. But you can also turn. You can turn to the God who made you and say, I welcome this rescue. I know that I need it. You can trust this divine king whose name is Jesus. And if you do that, you will live with him forever. Okay. Now, I don't know what you think. I'm sure Philip did a much better job than I did. But if it did make some kind of sense to you, and if that seemed like a reasonably complete explanation of the good news of Jesus, starting with that passage, I want you to know that that's, that's no accident. You see, when I was 19, someone took the trouble to teach me something called a gospel outline. Is anyone familiar with this idea, a gospel outline? So the one that I know is called Two Ways to Live. And its goal is simply to provide you with a mental framework to help you communicate the good news about Jesus. It's something that you can learn something you can practice and pray over. 
And once you've got that mental scaffolding in your mind, then you can do what Philip did. You can listen to where someone's at, try and be attentive to what God's doing in them, where their questions lie, and then start asking yourself the question, how can I get from here to the good news about Jesus? How can I minister to them with this wonderful remedy that God's provided? And then the framework helps you do that by showing you how to get from where they are to um, the content of the gospel. Now, all of this may sound a little bit clunky. It sounds a bit like college, doesn't it? Kind of, you know, working up a framework, memorizing it, getting it in your head. But I really want to challenge you to engage with thinking this way, because without this kind of preparedness, it's easy when you get a chance to explain the good news about Jesus, just to find yourself fluffing it completely. You know, when you meet the modern-day equivalent of this Ethiopian, maybe a new student at your school, maybe a mum at the school gate, maybe someone sitting next to you on a plane, you can easily find yourself getting into a conversation that's inviting you to explain the truth about Jesus. But without being prepared, you end up coming up with something like this. You say, well, Jesus is wonderful. I, I didn't know him, and now I do. And I'm so happy, and I really wish that you could be happy too. Well, there's some great sentiment in that, but it's not the gospel. It doesn't really say anything about Jesus that you couldn't say about a new relaxation technique or some great brand of washing powder. It doesn't give the person that you're speaking to anything to really feed on. It doesn't really raise any of the key questions or show why Jesus answers them. It doesn't tell them what Jesus does that no one else and nothing else can do. And I just don't think that Luke would be prepared to tolerate that. He's left this part of the story blank because he expects every single one of us to be able to rebuild us, if we're to, to rebuild it, if we're serious about this. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to now show you what my outline looks like. And if you're into this, what I would encourage you to do is pull out a pen, open up the inside flap of your Bible and draw this, because it's really simple. It's just six pictures to help you remember how to get through the content of the gospel. So, so the way that I do it, and you might want to do this too if you're following with me, is just divide up your page into these six boxes. We'll just dive in here at the first one. The way that this outline works, it just uses some really simple iconography. Again, it's here just to help you remember exactly what the um, framework looks like. And it uses this kind of big circle as an icon for the world. It uses a crown to represent God. And then in this first frame, it's basically talking about the creation of the world. So here we are standing on the world under God's rule. Now, I think the first step to explaining the gospel is this point to say, look, God is the maker and the owner of the world. Because without that, we haven't communicated why loving God is a command and not just an option. Do you see that? It's really easy if you're not aware that this is the place that you kind of need to start. It's easy to find yourself having a great conversation with someone, talking at length about Jesus and all that he's done. And then at the end, they'll say, well, I'm really glad that you have that great faith. That's great for you. It's not for me. Now, if you haven't explained that we are made, every single one of us, by God, and we owe him our allegiance, then you are unprepared to deal with that question when it comes. So it's a really important place to start. But we also need to say, when we're talking about the fact that God made the world, that God has not put us here under some kind of onerous burden to a killjoy God who wants to spoil our fun. God is a good God. He is good through and through. And to be called to love him and obey him is the most wonderful thing you could ever be asked to do. So that's the first picture. Now here's the second one. So number two. So again, we have the world and God ruling over it. And this is the problem, that God has been crossed out and that we have decided to step aside and put the crown on our own heads. So that's for those of you who are following on, that's the second picture. This is just capturing the fact that something terrible has gone wrong. The Bible tells us that we're selfish, that we're not content to be, as I said, the best and most blessed parts of God's creation. We want to take God's place. We want to decide for ourselves what's good and what's not. We spoil God's world and still we think we know what's best. And when I'm doing this with someone, I'd always try and get personal here 
because whenever I draw this, I just feel personally convicted. You know, isn't this true of me as well as true of you? And I think it's really helpful just to help someone see that this is explaining their own reality. It's not just some abstract concept. Then the third picture shows that there are consequences for this way of living. So I just draw it like that. What we're trying to show here is that God can't live with this and it's not right that he should. Our destructiveness is the complete opposite of what God is all about. In our universe, God is the definition. He provides the datum point for what goodness is. And so if he tolerates this world in box two here and he says, hey, I'm okay with all of this stuff that's happening in your heart and everything that's happening in the world and your selfishness and destructiveness, that becomes the new definition of what's good. And he won't tolerate that. So he says that we will, he will let us have the consequences of our choice and that we will die and be shut out of his presence as his enemies. And this then is the point where we get into maybe more familiar territory. So the fourth picture. Again, we draw the world with God ruling over it. But then we show God's rescue plan, a man on a cross. The gist here is basically to say that God could have left us where we have chosen to go, but he has not chosen to do that. He sent his son into the world to live as a human being, just like us, and to do all the things that we should have done. And then we get right to the heart of the message, this message of substitution, of God trading places with us. God said, I will let Jesus take the consequences, box three of your bad life, and he will be shut out of my presence in your place. And I will give you the consequences of his good life. You can enjoy the life that I originally planned for you because of him. Then box five. This gives you your chance to then talk about the resurrection. So this is just showing the fact it's really important for us to be able to communicate to people that Jesus has achieved and done everything that he set out to do and that the resurrection is the proof of it, that he's now gone back to heaven. He has the ability to do and deliver all that he promised, that all the consequences of death and, uh, and our bad lives are beaten. So all the consequences of our bad lives, even death, is beaten if we trust him. And then that gets us to the final picture which is just to stress this element of choice. Because we know that it's not enough just to go in and say to someone, okay, this is a wonderful picture, isn't it? You know, do what you like with it. Ultimately, there is a point at which we have to make a decision. We can carry on living the way that we want to. But if we do that, we have to let people know that there are consequences of that. Still heading for box three. But it's also possible to come back under God's lordship to say to him, I acknowledge that this rescue plan is just what I need. We can trust in Jesus, and if we do that, we will live with him forever. Sorry, I didn't put a six in my box there, did I? What an oversight. So that's it. I hope it makes some sense to you, and you could see where I was going with this. Obviously, the intention here is not that you would just kind of memorize this and then blast through all of your six boxes with your explanation without a breath, and then kind of back someone into a corner and ask for a decision at the end. The idea with this is to give you a mental framework so that you can then know how to weave the gospel into a conversation that you might be having. This might take a year to go through with someone. It might be a plan for your you know, conversations with a neighbor. You might think, you know, we're just talking about box two at the moment and we're going to be doing that for a while. But maybe I know where I ultimately want to try and go. I want to try and show them how Jesus is the rescuer and how there's a decision to make. You might have seen in my response to the Ethiopian, I just went straight in at box four because he was asking a question about the death of Jesus. So I went in and tried to give him an answer about that. And then I used boxes one, two, and three as kind of context setting, and then five and six to bring him to the point of decision. So let's say you get into a conversation with a friend, a student, maybe in your, in your college, and you're going to try Philip's technique. So you're like Philip, you're going to try and be attentive to God's spirit listening, saying, okay, you know, where is this person at? What is it that I can do? How can I minister to them? And then maybe you might ask them a good question like Philip asked and say, hey, you know, why are you working so hard to get a degree? And that might open up an interesting debate about purpose. You know, why am I working so hard at anything? Why am I here? What am I trying to achieve in my life? 
And then if you're like Philip, you're going to be thinking to yourself, okay, how do I get from here to the good news about Jesus? And the way you're going to do that is through box one. Because you just see a question about purpose, why am I here? Well, that's the first box. We're here because God put us here, and we're here to love and serve him. Well, let's say you get into that proverbial conversation with someone on an airplane, and again, you try Philip's technique. You pray, trying to be attentive to God's spirit, looking for that nudge, wondering whether this is someone that you can speak to. So you're trying to be listening. And then as you talk to them, trying to draw out from them and understand what it is that their needs really are. And then again, you're going to be thinking to yourself, okay, what's the good question I can ask? And you might just say, tell me today, why are you traveling to your destination? And then if God is in it, maybe you might get an interesting response back. Maybe someone might say to you, well, I'm flying out of state because I'm going to a divorce hearing. And then you might say, okay, well, how do I get from here to the good news about Jesus? And again, the framework is going to help you because now you're having a conversation about broken relationships. That's box two. So you're going to then try and say, well, look, the most important broken relationship in our lives is our broken relationship to God. And then that's going to help you get back to the context of box one and then through into the rest of the gospel. Now, I'd be really happy to talk to you at more length, anyone who wants to talk about how to use a gospel outline or how to develop one of these things. Um, I think it's a really great uh, discipline to have in your life. The main point here, though, is just to say, look, this is what this passage is summoning us to. The passage is saying we need to be able to explain the good news about Jesus, starting where people are at. We need to be attentive and we need to be prepared. We need to be listening, seeking God's leading as we move through our lives, listening listening for that nudge from the Holy Spirit as we talk to people, trying to figure out exactly where they are and how we can minister to them. So we're listening for the Spirit, you know, the equivalent of saying, see that carriage? Run up to it. There's the opportunity. There's someone I want you to speak to. But then we need to be ready to speak. The good news about Jesus contains the power of God to change lives, but the Bible expects us to be able to explain it. You know, after his long search, the Ethiopian went on his way rejoicing because he found life in the things that Philip had been able to get out of his mouth. He traveled 1,250 miles to find that memorial and a name that would endure forever within God's temple and its walls. But it was because Philip knew how to explain the gospel and was able to explain that the answer to his longing, actually that temple in the prophecy and the suffering servant, all of it is Jesus. That's the reason why the Ethiopian believed. Okay, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the privilege of bearing testimony to the good news about Jesus. And we pray that you would make us useful. We long that we could actually be effective as your servants. And so we pray for these two things. Would you help us to be attentive to your spirit? Would you help us to be sensitive to where you're leading us, to the friendships and relationships, to the chance acquaintances, where we can do something, where we can pass on this life-giving message? But God, would you also help us to be prepared, help us to know the good news, help us to be able to navigate it well so that we can give people more than some kind of popcorn answer, but that we can actually show them the words of life. And we pray, God, that people might be saved through our words as you promise. In Jesus' name, amen.